Hello and welcome to Opinionated Science, the podcast from Technology Networks. I'm Rory McKenzie and I'm delighted to be hosting today's episode. Opinionated Science gets rid of the peel and pith of science and our team of science journalists instead serve you juicy, nutritious studies in a digestible format. I really should have eaten lunch before today's recording. Uh, I am joined, however, for today's menu, today's podcast by my colleague Molly Campbell. How are you, Molly? I'm doing good, Rory, and I have to say kudos on the intro. Love it. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Today's research includes a really remarkable set of studies that have taken great strides towards developing neuroprosthetic legs and also some fish that are high on meth. Now, that last one is Molly's study, so I'm definitely missing out some scientific nuance, but that's kind of the the core of it. It's fish on meth, isn't it? Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Well, 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 we're going we're gonna to keep you waiting for that study. And instead, I'm going to first talk about some prize-winning prosthetics. Now, recently, Professor Stanisa Raspopovich was awarded the 2021 Science and Pins Prize for Neuromodulation, which is awarded for uh, the best 1,500-word essay summing up a body of research into an era of neuromodulation. Now, Stanisa's essay summed up his team's work towards developing a sensing neuroprosthetic leg. Now, this research was primarily undertaken at ETH Zurich, where Stanisa is a professor, and it's really quite remarkable research. So what I found interesting in reporting on this particular study was that despite pretty much all the previous um, you know, eye-grabbing neuroprosthetic headlines I'd seen before involving some kind of cool robotic arm, you know, the arm might be picking up some tiny intricate little device and then spinning it around in its fingers or being shown in a a user's day-to-day life. It's generally been a focus on the loss of upper limbs and prosthesis that can replace those. But in fact, this really surprised me, four out of five limb losses in modern day are actually lower limb losses or or lost legs and amputated legs. And um, I I did initially wonder why this was, but I I talked to Sinisa in in the course of uh, this study and he pointed out that Previously, you know, the, the reasons for amputations were maybe more um, due to due to trauma, for example. And uh, a good example is, is car accidents, which have, have reduced in recent years. So that that is as a parameter which would lead to a more balanced loss of, of upper and lower limbs. But nowadays, uh, in fact, the rise of peripheral arterial disease like diabetes has seen the number of lower limb amputations far outstrip that of upper limbs and and in general still there remains this what he called a human fascination with the hand that kind of influences how research is done but when his lab came into the the field they noted that a lot of available lower limbs were just really not up to the task of providing a uh, accurate and faithful replication of the sensation of having an intact limb he also pointed out that uh, there are a lot more clinical options available for people who've lost upper limbs because uh individuals can do well replacing a, an upper limb with a static solution or even using a residual arm to control a device. But individuals who've lost a leg really need a mobile sensory prosthesis to restore function. And uh, Raspopovich's research since has gone into to great lengths to try and recreate uh, the sensation of, of having a leg uh, using a neuroprosthesis. So uh, his team 
started a, a bespoke, unique approach to designing a prosthesis, which I'll try and briefly summarize. So uh, while a lot of other teams might have started off by looking at a, uh, a residual hand or a residual leg and thinking, how can we make a prosthesis for this? What Stenis's team was to start with an intact leg and monitor how neural connections from the brain to the periphery uh, were established with the, the intact leg. And by doing this, they were able to essentially pick out the nerves within someone's leg that uh, would be best to target with electrodes that that um, make up the, the basis of neuroprosthesis. Stenisa eventually developed this leg, which has sensors built into the knee area and also into the, the sole of the foot, which provide electrical signals back towards targeted nerves in the residual leg. And by doing this and by putting in these, what he called a decade of research into working out exactly which nerves would be best to target, has created a, a, a leg that essentially is, is targeted and stimulates these exact nerves to create uh, a sensory experience that's equivalent to, to having an intact leg. And what that means for a user is that uh, this, this artificial leg, which you can see uh, in the study linked through our show notes, uh, can be flexed and, and manipulated even while not attached to the user because it all functions wirelessly. And the user can tell the experimenter exactly what's happening to the leg because it's so uh, authentic and, and re reincarnates the, the experience of having a leg so faithfully. Now, the, the leg also runs a delay that's imperceptible to the user, which means that uh, natural gait can be retained. And, and in reading about the, the research that he's put into this, it, it threw up another uh, several interesting aspects of what it means to be using a prosthesis that I'd never really considered before. Uh, one good example of this is that users of, of leg prosthesis have a much higher risk of um, metabolic illness and having a heart attack, for example. And now this is because when using one of these prostheses, um, because natural gait is lost and uh, sort of it's a more unnatural movement when using a leg that doesn't have a sensory feedback mechanism, uh, users tend to use a much more unnatural gait, which uses a lot more metabolic energy. So someone using one of these legs climbing a set of stairs will be far more out of puff at the top compared to someone uh, with, with two intact legs. Now, um, with Stenisa's um, prosthesis, uh, what we found, what the, the team found was that um, the metabolic load was much reduced and, and, and this risk was, was also, also reduced as well. And uh, one thing I, I particularly was interested in was the effect also had on another interesting phenomenon in uh, prosthesis research, which is phantom limb pain. Now, this is where uncomfortable sensations emanate from a limb that's no longer there. And obviously this is quite a sort of maddening um, syndrome and is, is proved really intractable for a lot of prosthesis research. But um, the implanted electrode system that accompanies stenesis sensing leg has this really ingenious mode, which is called the neuropacemaker modality. And in this mode, the leg is removed and the uh, electrodes are simply stimulated in different ways. Now, this stimulation, because it's much more faithful to the sensation of having an intact leg, has been shown to reduce the feelings of phantom limb pain as opposed to less targeted stimulation. These, these previous legs, for example, might just produce a kind of buzzing feeling at the end, end of your leg that doesn't actually replicate a, a natural sensation, but is more just to uh, numb the pain rather than to um, try and cure it. But 
Um, Sinise's essay suggests that the system can, in fact, remodel the peripheral and central nervous system's connections to bring about a more curative solution to phantom limb pain, which I think is, is really remarkable. Um, and speaking to him, you know, we, uh, I asked him what the, the most rewarding part of his research was, and he said it's definitely the, the benefits it has for individual patients. And uh, I also like that the team seemed to put a lot of effort into getting feedback from users of the device. And in, in general, the, the, the thing that they said that was most beneficial is something that's harder to put a, a number on. It's you know, easy to say, ah, uh, they managed to climb across this difficult terrain in this much less time, or uh, you know, on a pain scale, this was so much reduced. But more subjectively, um, the patients also reported a greater sense of embodiment with the leg. And this isn't measured through functional tests. It's used, they use psychological tests like the, the mirror tests that um, try and essentially assess how much a prosthetic limb feels part of a user's body. And they were able to show that on these subjective ratings, this prosthetic leg with much more natural electrode uh, nerve connection felt much more like a user's intact leg. And I think that's the most remarkable part of it because it meant that users in the, the feedback survey that Stisa gave them were saying, you know, this is, this is, a huge benefit to our day-to-day -day lives and one user even reported back saying that the, the only improvement they could have would be to have the leg available uh, you know for them to to use every day because this is still reasonably experimental research and um Stisa did mention it is in the conclusion of his essay that funding for the the leg is is the next step securing that to make sure it can be more widely available to to the wider market but i think in general it just gave me a a real insight into some of the unique challenges of designing prosthetics, especially for the, for the lower body. And um, yeah, I was really, really amazed by the commitment to uh, this research that Nisa showed and the years of research he's put into designing what seems to be a pretty remarkable system. What do you think, Molly? Yeah, I think that's fascinating. I think my sort of favorite element of this work is the phantom limb pain and the you know the sort of attenuating the the impact of phantom limb pain because you know I think for listeners that might not be familiar so my understanding is phantom limb pain occurs because whilst the limb isn't intact the area of the brain in which the nerve signals relate to that part of the body is still there so therefore people experience the notion of that limb still being there due to that hardwiring so the idea that we can essentially remodel that wiring in a way that isn't pharmacological, I think is quite arguably is groundbreaking for the field. And it just makes me wonder where can you take that in the future? You know, we found this ability to remodel. It's, it's really interesting, obviously goes into the topic of plasticity. But yeah, I just, I think it's a fantastic study and, you know, a real, real credit to the researchers for all those years of investment of their time for it to really impact patients is fantastic. Yes, it's nice to, to report on lovely biomedical translational research that's having all these these impacts. But basic research is important too. And I, I don't quite know where, Molly, your study fits into the, the spectrum of things, but I, I do know it involves meth-addicted fish. So I think it's time you explained what's going on with these fish. It does. Let's talk about drug-addicted fish. <laughs> so um, let's start a bit more broadly. I think it's been documented quite quite a lot and for quite a few years now that the pharmacological 
what should we say, the, the different drugs that we humans use that we essentially need for our health can make their way into water systems. Uh, that's often through excretion from us humans via our urine, our waterworks, into water supplies that then eventually, eventually feed into sort of other waterways, uh, rivers, for example. Um, and I think a really classic example, which has been disputed, is the increased levels of estrogen found in water, um, often attributed to the higher use of contraceptive pills. Um, so that's one example, but there is, uh, to my understanding, there's some debate as to whether these levels are sort of of a particular concern, basically. But there was an interesting study in 2013 that was published in the journal Science, and it found that there are dilute concentrations of the anxiolytic drug oxazepam, which is used to treat anxiety in water systems. And it actually was able to affect the behavior and the feeding rate of a brood of fish known as wild European perch. So this obviously applies to pharmacologicals that we use to treat disease, for example, but it also applies to recreational drugs as well. So as we know, recreational drugs impact humans in very interesting ways, um, some arguably more impressive than others. Um, <laughs> so we, Sorry, know, <laughs> we know kind of what they can do to humans. Um, the big question is, what can they do to these organisms that occupy water systems, so aquatic organisms? And a research group at the Czech University of Life Sciences wanted to investigate this. And they did this in collaboration with the University of Southern Bohemia. And they've shed some light on specifically how the drug methamphetamine impacts a species of fish known as brown trout. Why brown trout, I hear you ask. Um, so this is a fish that is used quite a lot in toxicology studies. Um, it's a model organism. So the logic behind using this fish for this particular study is that the results would be sort of more widely applicable to wider ecosystems. So I'm gonna shorten methamphetamine to meth because let's face it, we all, we all know what it is. Um, it has been detected in freshwater rivers. Now the concentrations in which it is present really varies. And what I think is really interesting slash horrifying is this variation kind of coincides with human events. So let's think of, for example, a music festival where you know, there's going to be some use of drugs. Um, there are higher levels of meth in water supplies at time periods after human events, such as a music festival. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, yeah, and concerning. So for this study, the researchers wanted to basically see whether fish, brown trout, could become addicted to the drug meth. So what they did is they took a sample of trout 120 to be precise, and they divided them into two groups. Now, one group was acting as a control, but the other group was isolated in a water tank and that tank had been laced with a concentration of meth. Now, the concentration was basically taken as kind of a median from the varied levels that are found in, in fresh waterways. Um, and so the fish were isolated in this tank and the control group were isolated in a tank that there was no meth exposure. And as I say, this was for eight weeks. So after this eight week period, both of the groups were transferred to a separate tank and this tank contained completely clean water. And this was to simulate withdrawal. So they were placed in this tank for a 48 hour period. So after this, 
the researchers commenced some behavioural studies, which I think are quite interesting because they adopt what is known as a choice arena. Now, my understanding of um, flumes is not the greatest, but the lead researcher on the study, Dr. Pavel Hawke, kindly gave me an interview and explained how the behavioural studies were conducted. So the fish were exposed to a choice arena and in that arena, there were two flows of water and one was dosed with the exact same meth concentration as had been used in the previous study um, prior to the fish being taken out and put in the clean water to simulate withdrawal. And so basically the preference for meth in that flow, so sorry to backtrack, the two flows, as I said, one was dosed with meth and one was just clean water. So a preference for the water flow that contained methamphetamine was an indication of addiction of the fish. Now this method is reliable, um, Dr. Hawking informed me, it's used quite widely to study how aquatic organisms kind of perceive and respond to chemicals in their environment. Um, so looking at sort of avoidance behaviors or preferences towards specific toxins. And so in these behavioral studies, the trout that had been Exposed to the meth contaminated water previously for that eight week period did in fact display preference for the flow that contained the meth that was laced with the meth compared to the flow that was just clean water and the control group did not display such preference. So these behavioral studies were taken to indicate that these fish had become addicted to meth. Now, in addition to this, the trout that had been exposed to meth also demonstrated behavioral signs of less activity. And what the researchers did is they took post-mortem analysis of their brains and they found biochemical changes. And these biochemical changes were related to the observation of withdrawal symptoms. Now, Dr. Hawke explained this to me as basically there were biochemical differences in the brain and these were significant. So there was kind of an up and down regulation of different signal intensities, which relates to the number of biochemicals within the brain samples. And this declined over time, sort of mimicking withdrawal to a drug over a period of time. So essentially, the study indicates that there is the potential that in these sort of freshwater systems that are being exposed to toxins such as meth, there is the potential that the aquatic organisms occupying these areas can become addicted to these drugs. Um, and it's a big concern and Dr. Hawke kind of emphasized to me that these kind of behaviors that we're seeing, they can overshadow natural behaviors for the fish. So obviously if a fish is addicted to meth, that's a priority for them over other behaviors such as foraging or mating that are you know, rewarding for the fish and their species. It, it enables reproduction, homeostatic behaviours. So it could technically influence their evolution over time. So I just uh -huh. thought that was really fascinating. It's, yeah, it's concerning. It's, you know, this is a real, this is happening now. And I don't, I don't think there's that much exposure to this issue, which is why I really wanted to bring it to the table for, for the podcast. You know, we've got to think about how our behaviors are influencing organisms in the environment. And the team's next steps are to basically observe whether these behaviors are taking place in natural ecosystems, because obviously this study was a laboratory-based experiment. So 
So their next steps will be going out into the field and really measuring what is happening when these natural environments are exposed to, to recreational drugs. Yeah. So that's, in a nutshell, how, how fish can become addicted to meth. And now you know. I know you know, dear listener, uh, the, the stat that really caught my eye from your article, Molly, which again, we'll, we'll share in the show notes, was that while they picked one microgram per, per litre for the concentration in the tank in you know, those samples that you mentioned that were more exposed to, say, a, a music festival, it went up to 25 milligrams per litre. Like, you know, what, what would a fish exposed to that for any period of time be how would that change its behavior i wonder as well you know i'm, I'm glad you um specified by the way that um the flumes were you know a, a, a laboratory apparatus and not some kind of water park you know laced with with methamphetamine i mean i really enjoyed the water park as a kid but probably not for that reason um that but yeah yeah uh make the lazy river more interesting um but uh no i'm glad that you 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 specified the the way the, the lab studies were set up, because I, I do wonder if there's any way in, you know, in the wider environment to control these kind of chemicals entering the, the water systems, because, you know, I know that um, we we do purify waters, water for, for other chemicals, but it seems like these kind of drugs present in, you know, such small quantities, but, you know, quantities still substantial enough to influence behavior, um, you know, are bypassing or, or our filtration mechanisms. But yeah, if you just get fifth, fish um, all going to the, the same location with the, the highest level of meth is as opposed to their, say, breeding grounds, you know, it could have a really disastrous effect on ecosystems. So um, I think it's, it is really good you've, you've highlighted this study. It's, uh, it's not something that really, I've really come across in previous environmental research. Yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of one of those situations where if you really think about the scale that this problem could pose kind of the extent to which it could be an issue globally it's kind of like you're just scratching the surface where do you go from here like you said we have quite robust systems in place so we believe to purify water for our own consumption how do we extrapolate extra, extrapolate that and apply it to every water system in the world it's yeah it, it's really interesting i'm excited to see where this research goes next for sure Absolutely, Molly. I'm looking forward to every future articles on the topic as well. So thank you very much for joining me. That's all the time we have for today's podcast, but I hope you've enjoyed our discussions of prosthetics and fish. Uh, and until next time, please do keep following the podcast. Please like, share and subscribe. And of course, as always, please comment on our podcast. Don't keep your opinions to yourself. But thanks for joining us for today's podcast. Bye for now. <laughs>